I, I love this picture. It's a picture that was taken in 2012, nine years ago. It's a picture of my dad and my two daughters, Miriam and Hannah, who at the time were seven and five. Uh, this was a, a picture I love for a lot of reasons. This was my dad's birthday. Uh, he was born on September 20th, so tomorrow. And, um, and so for his birthday uh, in 2012, we gave him the gift of four tickets to a Georgia Tech football game where he had gone to school. And so the girls and I uh, took him. And, and part of what I love, there's a lot of things that, you know, when you connect with a, with a photo. This was us as we had just finished a meal and we were going to go into the stadium. Uh, part of what I love about this is um, my dad, as he wanted to plant seeds in them to be Georgia Tech fans, had, um, had said, well, it's a day game and the sun's out, so I'm going to buy them hats to go in there. And so we went to the stand. Now, the colors of Georgia Tech are white and gold, and my kids picked the only two bright pink hats that you could find with, uh, for Georgia Tech because they were seven and five, and that's what they loved. I love the fact in this picture that Miriam, my oldest, uh, was told, you need to help watch your little sister when they're middle of crowds. And you can see she is dutifully have her in a death grip right there, uh, <laughs> not letting go, as she had been told to do, the, the, the older sibling. But one of the fun parts about that game and that day for me was that as we were there, we were there watching Georgia Tech play North Carolina. And, uh, and while we were there, we were uh, cheering for Georgia Tech, of course. And, you know, we weren't being, like, cruel to North Carolina, but we were just clearly not calling for them. We were calling for Georgia Tech, which was our team. And at one point in the game, my father turned and looked at me, and he said, hey, uh, I don't think Hannah is very happy with you. And I looked down, and Hannah, in a mixture of kind of anger and sadness, was looking back at me, and she said, I don't like this. <laughs> I was like, okay. Can we narrow that in at all? Like, what part of this are we not liking? And she said, I don't like that we're making and calling for one team and being mean to the other team. I'm glad that's your response. I was like, come on. <laughs> like, really? I was, you know, like, okay. I said, well... She, I said, well, I don't, you know, we're not trying to be mean to him. We're just calling for our team. And she goes, Daddy, you told me that God loves everyone the same and that we should treat and love everyone the same. And I said, well, Hannah, we're not saying that God doesn't love the players on North Carolina. And she goes, they don't know that. <laughs> and she said... So from now on, I'm calling for both teams. I said, what? She goes, I am going to call and yell in support of both teams. Whenever anyone makes a good play, I'm cheering for them. I turned and looked at my father, who was like staring at me, going, what kind of filth have you polluted my grandchildren with at this point? And as I was turning back to Hannah, a woman who was sitting directly in front of us, she was there at the game with her husband, turned around and said, I don't mean to interrupt, but honey, I just love this. And so we are going to call for both teams as well. <laughs> and her husband like had this confused look and she elbowed him and she says, we are going to call for both teams 
as well. And Hannah, with this triumphant face, spent the rest of the game leading the six of us, the couple we didn't know in front of us, and my dad and Miriam and myself, in cheering loudly and enthusiastically for anyone who did anything good for the rest of the game, which is actually a very exhausting way to watch a sporting event. <laughs> and we received a lecture if our cheers for North Carolina were not as passionate as our cheers for Georgia Tech. What my daughter was pointing out, and it's actually an important thing for us all to pay attention to in our lives, is when we come to moments where what we say and what we do aren't in alignment. When what we say things should look like, when we say what the world should look like, and then our actions don't come together, which is something all of us struggle with if we're paying attention, is something that we need to consider today and going forward as we continue in our series entitled Rebuild. Now, in this series, this uh, has been based upon a premise. And the premise is, is that this moment, as difficult as this time is, and it is a difficult time in history, make no mistake about it, this is a tough time. But this is also a critically important time. Because what we see in the book that we've been studying, the book of Nehemiah, is that it is in the midst of the chaos of the Jewish exile and captivity from, uh, caused by the Babylonians, it was in the place of that disruption and that disorder and that disorientation and that pain and that difficulty that God's call comes to Nehemiah to begin to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It's not waiting for things to stabilize and get better before the call comes, but it's in the midst of the turmoil that God's call comes to rebuild the wall. And because it's in the midst of the turmoil, because things are upended, because things are so difficult, it means that when Nehemiah goes back, he has the opportunity to truly look at how the wall should be built. And he doesn't just rebuild what was there before. This is not about recapturing the glory days of what used to be. But he actually is able to lead the people in rebuilding the wall in a way that is changed and different and new and better than the wall that was there before. That is the moment before us. The moment before us in our own time of disruption and our own time of difficulty is that now is the moment when God's call and God's leading will come to rebuild our lives, to rebuild our habits, to rebuild our relationships, to rebuild our city, to rebuild the fabric of society that feels like it is being torn apart right now in division. Now is the moment when profound change is possible. And we don't want to miss it because the call of God upon you is the same as upon Nehemiah. Now is the moment to rebuild things in ways that are better than we've ever known before. Now what we did in the opening part of this series is we talked about how do we learn to hear God's voice? Like if God's calling us to rebuild, how did Nehemiah come to learn of that call? And how do you and I start to discern what God's call, how do we understand God's voice to us? Last week, we took a, a, a kind of turn for the second part of the series. And the, the turn we took last week, and we're going to continue on today, is about how do we start taking that sense of a burden, that sense of how we might be called to rebuild, and how do we start putting that into action? We saw last week, uh, for example, that as we uh, began this move towards action, that Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem in a particular way. He shows up in Jerusalem and he doesn't walk in saying, uh, God is giving me this call. The king has told me what I have to do. You all have to follow exactly what I'm supposed to say. He enters into the city discreetly, we said. 
He goes and inspects the wall. He goes and tours every inch of the wall that's been broken down so that he doesn't just go in and start rebuilding, but he goes and starts making decisions about how we should do this and why we should do it the way we do. And it's in that moment of doing his homework that that's where he starts to get a vision for how a wall can be rebuilt better than the wall that was there before. What we've said is that if you and I are going to lead in the ways that we see with Nehemiah, we have to do the same thing. We have to understand that leadership isn't, isn't, is it doesn't come with a degree or a title. You can boss people around if you have a title, and that works for a short amount of time. But leaders have to, and leadership has to be earned. Nehemiah does this by the way he enters the city. But after inspecting the wall and doing his homework about what the wall and the rebuild should look like, The scripture verse we're going to look at today is where Nehemiah, for the first time, announces what God's call upon him and the people are. The first time it becomes public. So the scripture that we're going to look at is one verse. It's the verse after what we looked at last week. It's just Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Then I said to them, you see the trouble We are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, how we come to worship today, that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, friends, what I want you to hear as part of this series, and this is an assumption and and something we need to know every week, but I want to particularly name it today, is that when you and I hear that we are called to rebuild our world, the inference in that is that you and I are all called to lead in that effort. You and I are all called as leaders in doing so. Now, when you hear the call to leadership, people are going to hear that differently. There's some of you who are like, oh, yeah, I'm a leader. Put me in. I I am ready for that. That's what I do. Others of you might be sitting there going, that's not really my thing. I have different gifts, uh, but leadership's not one of them. Some of you might be saying, I'm training to become a leader, and I hope someday to lead. Some of you might be going, you know, my best years of leadership are behind me. And I want you to throw all of that out. Because the truth is... Every single one of us in this call to rebuild is also called to lead, to affect change. There is no one that we're suggesting here is just going, your life's perfect, your relationships are perfect, our city is perfect, our nation is perfect, our world is perfect. Just everyone maintain the status quo. The question is, how is God calling you to lead? Now let's talk about a definition of leadership so that we know what it is we mean. We're going to bring it up here on the screen real quick. This is a definition that I love. Leadership is the ability of an individual to influence and guide those around them. Leadership is the ability of an individual to influence and guide those around them. That does not come with a job title. That does not come with a degree. All of us, as we start to get a burden for how God wants us to move forward, how God wants us to rebuild. And again, as we said last week, it's not about if you've got a big public thing like Nehemiah. It's not if it's in the smallest relationships, relationships with your spouse, your friends, your children. The call to rebuild is real and you need to lead, to influence, to guide in those efforts. That's why God's given you the call that God has. 
So you look at it that way, the most important leaders aren't the ones that job titles say it is. The most important leaders, I believe, are parents. And followed closely after that are grandparents and aunts and uncles and educators and teachers and Sunday school leaders and coaches. These are the people that guide and shape and form. Maybe if it's just one other person every single day and you influence that. So every one of us has a call in some sphere or another to rebuild and you are to exert influence and guide in that area. And what I want you to hear and whatever and however this burden and call God might look to you, the thing that we see with Nehemiah in this passage, and it is critical for every one of us to understand it, if you and I are going to affect change in any level in our own lives, is that Nehemiah reveals something that is critical about what leadership looks like. Leadership is not telling other people what to do. Leadership is doing something yourself and inviting other people to come do it with you. Leadership is not telling other people what to do. Leadership is doing something yourself and inviting others to come do it with you. That was what was so important about Hannah looking at me and saying, what you're telling me and what you're doing aren't in alignment. That's why the alignment question is so big, because if you and I are going to have influence, part of how we earn the right to lead is people are going to look and say, well, are you doing it or not? There's plenty of keyboard warriors saying, well, this is what the government should do or the pastor should do or the church should do or business should do or whatever should do. That's, that, just sitting there talking about what other people should do is not leading. That's critiquing. And critics don't build up. They tear down. We are not called to tear down. We are called to rebuild. And therefore, we have to lead, not critique. Leaders don't tell people what to do. They do it, and they invite others to come do it with them. Think about it this way. If you think about my time at Covenant um, and the time I've been here, uh, you know, there's certain things, there are themes that might come up. And one of the things that I would say, I hope this is true, is that if you've been in covenant for any amount of time, and like what is one of the central things for Thomas? One of the central things for me is to say, if we are going to be formed as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have got to be walking in community with each other. It's not enough to be a part of a crowd at a big church like Covenant. You've got to have pockets of community. You've got to have life-on-life community. You've heard me say this before. You've got to have people that know how to pray for you, and you know how to pray for them as well. I've said this a lot of different times, right? Well, what would happen is if you've worked for that and you've built your calendar for that and you've sacrificed for that and you've woken up early for that and you've been following this and then you found out one day that I'm like, well, I don't actually do that. It's like, what what are you talking about? Leadership's not telling people what to do. It's doing it yourself because you got a sense of conviction about it and inviting others to come do it with you. Or what if I pulled the card that many pastors pull in in their churches, which is to say, I believe in community, but I can't do it here because I'm the pastor of this church. And I'm the pastor of this church, then I can't like be the pastor if I am part of just kind of the community. That is nonsense. And it's bad leadership. How is that different than an attorney that goes here that has clients that go to this church or a psychiatrist that goes here who has clients that go to this church or people who go here who have family members who go to this church? If I can pull that card of why I can't do it, then almost all of you have some sort of reason. You're like, well, this is why I'm not going to be exposing myself and, and sharing what's really going on in my life with each other. 
Leadership's not telling other people what to do. It's doing it yourself and inviting others to follow you. Are your words and your actions in alignment? Are you just telling people this is what needs to happen? What I want us to do real fast is I want us to look at this passage from Nehemiah. I want you to see this alignment that's so important if we are going to make an impact on things. And what I'm going to do is we're going to bring a slide up here that has kind of three different things. In this one verse, these are three phrases where Nehemiah suggests, here's what the rebuild should look like. Now, while this is up here, I'm going to read the whole verse we just read. You're going to hear these phrases. And I want you to pay attention to this alignment question for Nehemiah, okay? Here's the whole verse. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. You hear those phrases in there? Now let's look at each one of them, okay? The first one where Nehemiah says, the troubles that we are now in. See the troubles that we are now in, he says. Hear that, prepo- uh, that, that, yeah, that preposition, where he, or the pronoun, sorry. Every English teacher here is now like going, I can't believe you can't. No, it's not a preposition, it's a pronoun. The pronouns here are the we and us pronouns, right? The trouble we are in. He doesn't sit there and type out an email from uh, uh, Babylon and go, you guys are in a lot of trouble, you should rebuild the wall. That's not leading. That's not influencing. That's not guiding. What he says is the troubles we are in. Does his actions match up with his words? Absolutely they do. He's given up his position as cupbearer in the, in the court of King Artaxerxes. He's left that cushy position behind, that, that, that protected position behind, and he has gone to be with the people in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, they're not being able to defend themselves. That is now Nehemiah's place in life. He is exposed and in trouble as well. You see the alignment thing there? This is one of the great things that we read in the German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When World War II was about to begin and the Nazis had taken over Germany, Bonhoeffer, like many others, spoke out against the Nazis. And yet, like many others, he also fled to safety in the United Kingdom because he knew that he would be hunted down. But Bonhoeffer wound up returning to Germany. And the reason he returned, he said, is because the people of Germany are about to suffer on an almighty scale. And I have no business coming back and telling them what they should do once Hitler is gone if I have not suffered with them. It's not okay for me to sit in London by myself and be fine, and then all of a sudden when things are over, come back and go, now let me tell you what to do. It's not about telling people what to do, it's about doing it and inviting others to come do it with you. Second phase, let us rebuild. Again, it's not like Nehemiah saying, you guys should go do this. His actions have already aligned with it. He has traveled 800 miles through the desert with all of this timber and supplies to rebuild. Nehemiah is not the kind of leader that's going to be sitting in the sage shipping, sipping lemonade going, hey, somebody go breach that part over there. Somebody go do this. They've already seen that he is willing to sacrifice to be a part of the project with them so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. Again, this, this pronoun of we, he's sharing in their identity now. He is sharing in their journey now. He is sharing in their struggle now. If you are called to rebuild, and every one of us is called to it, you need to ask yourself, do your words and beliefs and your actions align? Or not? 
As we close this out, last week I was struck, as many of you were, as I went through last weekend, to go through the 20th year of remembering September 11th. It's always an important time. It's always a powerful time. Um, but last week, last weekend actually kind of surprised me personally at how much it impacted me. Um, and I think there were a lot of reasons for that. It, it, but it felt like it impacted us uh, in a way um, that was really important. And I just kind of like a lot of you probably had to sort of sit in all of that. I was reminded of a story of an individual whose photo we're going to bring up here. And some of you may know the story of this individual. This individual was the chief of the department, the highest ranking firefighter in New York City who would still wear a uniform. His name was Pete Gancy. Peter Gancy had risen from the lowest ranks in the fire department of New York to this top rank. Peter Gancy um, had started as a, a veteran of Vietnam. He was a, a paratrooper. And then he had entered, uh, after the military had entered into the fire department of New York. He had risen up through the ranks and at one point had actually won the old, one of the oldest awards given out in the United States. For 150 years, one medal of valor is given out every year to a member of the fire department of New York. And Pete Gancy had won it years before 9-11 for going into an apartment that was on fire and saving a five-year-old girl and suffering major injuries himself in the process of getting her out. Pigancy had risen to the, this chief of the department, and on the morning of September 11th, he was actually there in his uh, tie because he was supposed to be in court testifying for uh, a trial. Now, while he was there, the first plane flew into one of the Twin Towers, and like every other firefighter uh, and first responder, Pete Gancy immediately drove down. And because he was the chief of the department, he was really in charge of the operation to try to rescue people. He set up a headquarters near the base of the Twin Towers and was leading and instructing these unbelievably brave and courageous individuals who went into those burning towers. As they were rescuing and bringing people out, and Pete Gancy was organizing this entire effort, an individual came to him who was a structural engineer. The structural engineer pulled him aside and said, never before in history has a skyscraper collapsed before. But this skyscraper is beginning to show signs that it is collapsing in on itself. And I think it's in danger of coming down. 10 seconds after receiving that announcement, the first tower fell. And Pete Gancy was able with his uh, leadership, because where they had set up the command, there was an underground garage right there. And while it was coming down, they were able to go into the tunnel. And they were alive. And they had survived. And through the dust and everything that we remember from that day, they emerged from that tunnel. And Pete Gancy said to the team that was around him, the other tower is going to come down. And so what we need to do is to move our base of operations five blocks away. And he then turned to the second in command and said, I want you to go and organize it. And at that moment, Peter Gancy turned and ran into the rubble to organize whatever could be rescued of the first responders, of the firefighters, and of the civilians who were still alive after the collapse of the first tower and to try to get as many out of the second tower as they could. And Pete Gancy stayed 
and led that entire effort, saving untold hundreds, maybe thousands of lives until the second tower collapsed, at which point he lost his life. And Peter Gansey was the highest ranking member of the 343 heroes that died in the World Trade Center, was the highest ranking member who lost his life in New York on 9-11. It was said at his memorial service, the reason we loved Pete Gansey was because there was no way he was gonna send us into danger and go sit in a headquarters five blocks away. Leadership is not telling other people what to do. Leadership is doing something yourself and inviting others to come follow. This is what makes Nehemiah effective. It's because his words and his actions align. And in the call to rebuild, and I want you to hear this as we close, I want you to hear this clear as day. We will emerge from the difficulties of the times we are in right now. Our families, our relationships, our society will rebuild. But how it will rebuild is in question. The people who are going to rebuild it, this is not Star Wars. This is not where the good guys always win. It's going to be rebuilt. But the question, is it going to be better than it was before or not? And it's going to be people who influence that. And you are called to make a difference in this world. To guide, to influence, to rebuild, to lead. And the ones who are going to impact this in private ways and in public ways are not the people with the best ideas. It's going to be the ones who are most effective at leading. And leadership at its core begins not by telling everyone else what to do, but by following your convictions and doing it yourself and inviting others to come. May we lead in this biblical way so that our lives and our world might truly become a better place than we have ever known. This is such a critical moment. And I look forward to seeing what it is that God is going to do through you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, guide us, be with us, lead us that we might be a part of rebuilding this world that you love into something more glorious than we have ever known before. Help us to begin with our own lives. And may we step forward and say yes in Christ's name. Amen.